This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Gladwell. Mike Trott is coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville, now part of the Athletic Baseball Show, where you will find great baseball talk all week long and all season long. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for the Athletic, and I'm joined once again by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer, and the voice of Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN Radio, Doug Glanville. Doug is almost literally right off the plane after traveling all day from Houston. So, Doug, just curious how that went. Like, knowing you, you probably sat next to Gino Oriema or something on the plane, right? <laughs> well, you could add pilot to the list. That would be a good skill to have with, uh, you know, the travel. But you know how it goes, man. It's 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 good. I mean, I, I was in Texas for a lot of cool stuff. Uh, all the Final Four, you know, had men's and women's. They went from Houston to Dallas. Yeah. There's a Taylor Swift concert in uh, Globe Life, you know, next door. Uh, so I, I covered the uh, entire pop culture in the last five days. So <laughs> I feel I'm ready to go. You did. You didn't sit next to Taylor Swift on the plane either, right? I did not. I did not. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be a very special plane, though. Very special. Yeah. And, and everybody should know, Doug, when we say that Doug's a professor, he teaches at UConn. Um, as you're listening to this, you know what happened in that game last <laughs> night. Doug does not know because it's Monday. <laughs> now, what do you think people are thinking out there? Well, that's exciting for me. A lot of uh, my <laughs> students are involved in the basketball program. They're managers. They're, you know, I've, I mean, it's incredible. So all year long, but, well, usually it's men and women's, but now the men are left. So I'm excited. I'm hoping they'll win and then I'll, I'll be able to, you know, celebrate in class tomorrow. Uh, today, but sure, whatever. Oh, and, today, that's right. So, so none of those people that you spoke about, they'll actually be in class, but whatever, you you celebrate all you want, okay? <laughs> anyway, I'm glad you made it back from Texas because today is maybe our favorite Starkville tradition of the year because it's that day when Theo Epstein joins us to make us all smarter and explain the thinking behind all the new rules. So Theo, welcome Great to have you back in Starkville. Happy rule change season. Thanks for having me, guys. Happy opening day. Hope you're enjoying what uh, so far is a pretty great baseball season. Glad to have it back. Yeah. Uh, hey, before we get started, uh, is it okay if we call this an official tradition now? Uh, this would make, <laughs> what, three years in a row that you've joined us for the first show of the season? You feel like a tradition? These days, by that by, by modern standards, that's very much a tradition. So let's, let's call it that. <laughs> Okay. So the guy who used to work for the Red Sox and the Cubs. Sure. (laughs) Tradition. Let's go with that. Um, All right. Let's talk about baseball in 2023, because I think a word we could use to describe it is different. Um, As we speak, going into games of Monday, the average game is lasting 
two hours and 38 minutes, which is right about where it was in spring training. We've had 18 games that lasted under two and a half hours and one that lasted over three and a half hours. And that was a 10 nine game. So we should start there. What do you thought of what we've seen so far? Well, first of all, I think it's important to issue a pretty important disclaimer, which is, you know, <laughs> small sample sizes. And yeah. it, it's really smart to let this uh, play out, you know, before, before we draw any conclusions. And I'm not in the business of drawing conclusions either. I'm, I'm just in the business of trying to, you know, monitor what's going on, listen to players, listen to fans, um, make sure we try to get it right. This is not an end point per se, but just uh, an important step, you know, in, in what will be an evolution of trying to get us uh, closer to the very best version of baseball. So, you know, no conclusions to be drawn. The, it's such an early point in the season that uh, just like players aren't panicking or shouldn't be panicking, you know, <laughs> if, they, if they don't have a hit yet, um, we don't we don't want uh, any fans or, or pundits to be panicking or 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 too overjoyed about anything they've seen so far. So <laughs> let's take a step back. That said, um, you know, th I'm proud of the industry for the attitude that everyone's had. And I include everyone in that, you know, players, um, teams, umpires, um, everyone at MLB, owners, fans, uh, media folks um, embraced this challenge with, with a great attitude uh, this winter going into spring training. Um, I thought, Everyone made the most of spring training and 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 the fact that there's we're averaging less than one violation per game right in this early stage combined from both teams is testament to the fact that teams really, um, you know, uh, use spring training for their benefit to try to adjust to the rules. And that, you know, the headline is that you can never speak um you, you you can never sort of generalize about fans and, and make blanket statements about them. It's not a, a, a monolith. They're fans with all different opinions who enjoy the game different ways. And no one's going to, you know, we're never going to reach a point where everyone loves the style of play of the rules. But I would say in general, so far, the fans are are really happy with, with the improved pace of play, um, with the fact that there's, you know, more action in the game, with the fact that the game the style of play looks a little bit more, more diverse now where, you know, th their teams are scoring runs with singles and stolen bases. The balls are getting through um, infielders are, are on the spot now for their athleticism. And it's just been fun to fun to watch baseball at this pace and with this amount of action strikeouts, notwithstanding, which I'm sure we'll get to. Um, but so far, so great. You know, I'm really happy um, with, with, with how it's playing out early and got to make sure the players you know, feel comfortable, make sure uh, the umpires continue to do a good job and we'll see where it takes us. You, you know, you're here a year ago, I think a year ago today, and we were looking into the future at this very version of baseball and thinking about the, the rhythm that games have with the clock. And it's just so striking as somebody who watched really closely in spring training and has watched a lot of baseball so far. It's incredible the stuff that we used to see that we don't see at all now. Like, I don't know what you miss most. Is it the thousand times a game that hitters used to mess with their batting gloves <laughs> or the full chorus of every walk-up song? Well, at, at my advancing age, I miss the free bathroom break where you could try to you know, <laughs> sneak, sneak one in and not miss a pitch or certainly not miss a ball and play. Um and and we don't have that luxury anymore. But no, the the pace 
is is I think what gets everyone's attention first because it's 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 almost like a visceral thing, right? Like you can look at the data all you want, and that's an intellectual exercise, and it's really meaningful. And I think it's important to deliver a game with the right you know the, the right type of events, events fans like, and, and the right quantities. And that we'll, I'm sure we'll get to that. But the pace of play is something more emotional, more visceral. Um, and I think the general reaction to watching this pace of play is that like, this is the way baseball is meant to be played. And frankly, it's the way it was played for most of its history. You know, um, I think Bill James made a great point a while back about that. There used, there used to be a a pitch timer. It was called the sun. And (laughs) when when you had to get the game in with no lights, when you had to get the game in before sundown or maybe even get a double header in, no one was stepping out of the box. No, no one was adjusting anything. It was, hey, let's let's get this thing in while while we still can. And that's the way that the the pace of baseball evolved. It was, you know, you're supposed to throw a pitch uh, in a natural cadence, sort of almost as you breathe, and and it's meant to be played that way. And so now we're seeing that again. It's almost like a reawakening of sorts. So I love it, and you know, I I probably don't get uh, the more people who have my. Um, I think more people are inclined to text me good news and bad news because, like, if you know, if they're out to get me, they don't have my cell phone number. But <laughs> I, I'm getting a lot of positive texts from fans who are really enjoying the piece as well. Uh, well, Theo, given you know our discussion last year, and obviously there's still a little trepidation when you're kind of messing with the sort of traditionalist perspective of baseball. Uh, so I'm curious about: are there any standout surprises that? has you know resulted in the small sample we have so far or just maybe commentary or feedback you've heard that's been like well that's that's better than expected yeah interesting um well i could uh, one thing that stood out to me in spring training um was how noticeable it was um that the second baseman was now on the spot now in a key defensive position the way shortstops traditionally are i think all of us had gotten really used to the second baseman kind of being an afterthought defensively because of extreme shifting and because of the ability to position oneself and, and, you know, pretty deep into the outfield to, to expand your range and make those plays that we'd come to think of it as sort of a, you know, a position you could hide someone at, or, you know, you take a corner guy and, and you live with throwing them out there in order to get the benefit of the bat. And right away from the first spring training game I saw on when a left-handed hitter is up who hits the ball hard, and a lot of them do, and especially when there's a guy on first, so the first baseman is now holding that runner on, and you got to cover the hole as well, without help from the shortstop or anyone else, and 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 without the ability to, to play deep back in the outfield, that second baseman is on the spot to make do-or-die plays. And maybe it was just – I just got lucky, but I saw a ton of plays – uh, hard hit balls to the second baseman's left or right where he had to take, you know, three, four steps in a dive and either make the play and, and record the out and get his pitcher out of a, out of a, out of a jam or that ball got right by him. Maybe he wasn't, you know, didn't get a good break or wasn't, wasn't, didn't have the most range in the world. And and now all of a sudden now that ball's through when in years past it hadn't been, and you're seeing first to third baseball and you're seeing right fielders arms challenge now. And that's precisely the type of baseball that fans told us in our outreach that they liked. They liked seeing stolen bases, first to third, um, great defensive plays and, and, and diving plays. And so it's just really refreshing to see that again. And then the other thing is, you know, the, 
the combination of more singles, which we're going to see um, with the shift restrictions and more stolen base attempts and more stolen bases, which we're also going to see with the disengagement rule and the bigger bases. That's a pretty dynamic combination, right? Because stolen bases aren't necessarily worth trying when the only way you think you're going to score is a home run anyway. It's like, why would you risk the out for 90 feet or even for 180 feet if 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 you're more, more likely to score just with a homer and singles are so hard to come by? Well, now the fact that there are more singles makes it a much better play. So you're seeing more single stolen base single to produce a run, which is a great thing. I think the best version of baseball um, includes um, diversity of approach, right? That you might, you know, those days in the eighties were great when you'd have, you know, some, some teams that were, were bangers. And then you had the Cardinals who'd have, you know, seven guys who could fly and one Jack Clark sitting in the middle of it. And it's, it's great to get, um, you know, give, give teams more options on how to construct their roster, how to build an offense and just how to score a run. So obviously we need to attack the strikeout issue. That's something that doesn't look like the pitch timer is going to, going to address head on and we'll get to that. But for now, just just what it means for infield defense, putting the second baseman in, in these do-or-die positions and bringing back diversity of offense and the single and the stolen base together. And it makes for a more interesting game, more entertaining game. You know, uh, since you brought that up, uh, I had a day in spring training where I sat around a manager's office with the manager and the GM or president of baseball ops. I can't remember which, which his title was. And we got into this discussion of – a world where now a single is more valuable and more attainable. A stolen base is more valuable and more attainable. And what the ripple effects of that are. Um, does it affect strategy? Does it affect hitter approach? Does it affect the draft? Does it affect team building? What I mean, we didn't come to any agreement, but what do you think is the answer to those questions? I think yes to, to all of them. That, that's 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 the way it it should be, right? I, I love it when when teams have choices, right? Like not, not nothing about the rule changes mean that it, a team can't decide. You know, like hey, we still think the best way to build a team is with walks and homers. So you know, we're really good at identifying hitters with power and hitters with good plate discipline. So that's what we're going to do. Well, you can still do that. There's just a little bit of a cost associated with that now. And there's, there's more that you have to defend, but it gives another team maybe that can't afford certainly in free agency to go sign a bunch of guys who had 40 homers or lead the league in OPS and another way to do it where they can start drafting a little bit differently for athletes who can, you know, uh, rise to the occasion with, with, with the, the requirements that, that, you know, you see now in the defensive infield um, with, you know, speed to to run the bases and take advantage of stolen base opportunities, first to third opportunities. Um, guys who put the ball in play, you know, with low strikeout rates and good bat to ball skills, who can take advantage of of the improved in play environment and 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 try to try to score runs and win games with a different brand of baseball. And that's just a really good thing. So, it's, yeah, I think ultimately it will change the way organizations strategize across a broad spectrum of. Uh, departments and initiatives yeah um you know I, I wrote about this the other day but I, I think when people look back on this year this season 10 years from now 20 years from now 50 years from now are we going to say this was the year that changed everything 
I don't know. I've heard a number of people, you know, already speculating about this is the biggest change, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, since since the invention of the, of the light bulb and things like that. I, it's, I don't. I'm more cautious. I think it's it's important to you know only history can tell us that, and and I don't think so. I think I think you know the the significant event was really sort of letting baseball get away from us a little bit in the first place. Right. Like no, no one, I said this before, but we have to remember that we're, I think we're fixing something. We're definitely, hopefully we're improving something, but we're also fixing something. Right. No, no one 30 years ago would have sat there and said, let's design a set of rules and a set of equipment um, so that one day we'll get to a point where the league hits 243. No, like that's not baseball. The league should not be hitting 243. The league should be hitting a lot higher than 243. Nobody would have designed a set of rules and equipment that would lead you to one ball in play every four minutes or, you know, generational lows and stolen bases and doubles and triples. And no, no one would design a game and say, like, let's, let's, let's limit the amount of athleticism on the field. So we're, we're really trying to uh, get away from some of from the way the game has changed unintentionally the last you know couple decades and and so um i don't know that this can be you know uh, a change of the magnitude you mentioned earlier when when we're we're course correcting in a way but look i think it's it's important for baseball and I, what i love about it i think it shows and has already shown in a small sample size baseball's unlimited potential right like we we haven't been doing much the last couple of decades to um sort of bring out the best in the sport from an entertainment standpoint with the rules and the way things have evolved. And we're already, you know, incredibly popular. More people attend baseball games than, you know, the other sports combined. Any night during the summer, more people are, if you add up all the local broadcasts, tuning into baseball and watching anything else on, on TV, it's already an $11 billion industry. And that's really the floor. Now you start leaning into progress and putting the best version of baseball out on the field, engaging your fans um, more frequently and in better ways with the style of play that we have now and all the techno technological possibilities and listen to the players and put them in the middle of the action. The sky's really the limit for baseball. So that, that's what gets me excited. So I'm not going to characterize how big it is, but I think it's <laughs> one important step in, in a series of improvements that are available to us that, that uh, are going to be really meaningful for baseball. And that's great for those of us, like everyone on this <laughs> Zoom who love the game and listening to it too. Yeah, well, 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 Theo, one thing that you kind of sparked in, in your response earlier was, you know, I played Dungeons and Dragons growing up. And, you know, for those of you who know, like you have all these classes of characters, there's a movie out actually, and they all have different strengths and you have to work as a team, as a group. That's when you're most effective. And no one class can just say, I'm going to just run rub shot over everybody. Sure. Uh, and, and the fans of this are obsessed with the balance. If I choose to be a rogue or a bard or a fighter or a wizard, everything, everyone has to have an equal chance. Now, I guess I'm curious if that that model that you just mentioned around like baseball, you can win a lot of different ways, right? Building teams. Mm -hmm. uh, do you see a correlation to that in terms of, you know, not only the sense of having a dynasty, right? The Yankees win or whoever wins every year and it actually being better for baseball that everyone has a chance, not only because of financial, but because of philosophical approaches. Yeah. 
Well, while you were playing Dungeons and Dragons, I was playing Micro League Baseball. So I don't know. I don't know what that's. I think <laughs> oh, that I makes played us, that too. I think that I makes us that. both nerds. That makes us both nerds. <laughs> we'll, we'll wear it proudly. Um, yeah, look, I think I think diversity is a great thing. Diversity of of, of approach and diversity of style of play is, is is a great thing. It's just it it just makes for um, it makes for a, a better product. And um, yeah, I think just. I think I think sometimes it takes um, putting guardrails in place to make sure um, there's not one style of play or even one type of player that can like dominate dominate the game. And baseball at its best always has this great equilibrium um, about it, and you know there are areas in which we've lost our balance, like the the strikeout rate, for example, right? Like this, I don't think it was it was it was ever drawn up. You know, the game was never designed to have nearly a quarter of plate appearances and and in a in a strikeout. Um and and uh you know that's something that that we have to address. And the game wasn't designed to have, you know, home runs, walks, and strikeouts um represent, you know, over a third of the you know outcomes of plate appearances, whatnot. So you know, the ball the, the game was designed to have the ball in play and to have the the ball in play in play frequently and to to have lots of different ways to get, you know, the batter to become a batter runner, and then and then to, and to have that batter runner or to have base runners either come safely around to home plate. And I think you know the the rules now, um, I think have you know improved the in play environment a little bit, made the path around the bases a little bit easier at a time when that was important for some of that equilibrium to be restored between the offense and the defense. And among teams trying to accomplish the same thing, scoring runs and preventing runs, but now they can do it in different ways. Uh, hey, let's circle back to the pitch clocks just for a second. Um, not surprisingly, we, we've had some players who've kind of blamed the pitch clock, I guess, for stuff that ha- happened, bad stuff. Uh, I'm sure you never saw that coming. Um, you know, JT Real Muto uh, talked to uh, Matt Gelb of The Athletic after opening day about how hard he thought it was for the pitcher to gather himself and slow the game down when things start to steamroll. Uh, we've heard several pitchers say similar stuff to that. What would you tell them about the clock? Um, I guess I'd make two main points in response to that. Um, the first is about the adjustment period and what, what we learned in the rollout in the minor leagues. And, and, and the second is about, um, is about listening and something, you know, commissioner Manfred has said this week, which is that, you know, n- n- none of this um, is necessarily set, set in stone. And that is, it's important that we continue to listen and be open to adjustments in the future to make sure we get it right. But first the, the adjustment period, um, I, I, you're, you're aware of this, but you know, the, the pitch timer was tested throughout the minor leagues last year. We've had, you know, with these rule changes over 8,000 minor league games that we use to test the rules, to improve them, to throw out the ones that didn't work and to tweak the ones that did in order for them to, to make, you know, to avoid unintended consequences and then to make sure that they would work and to make sure that players could play under these rules at a very high level and in a really natural organic way over time. And one thing we discovered with the pitch timer was that, um, it did feel awkward for the first few weeks and there were plenty of violations, you know, nearly two violations per game in the minor leagues 
the first couple of weeks that we rolled it out. But that after a month, we got down to less than half a violation per game between the both teams combined. So that that's at, that's at a point where you're only getting one violation uh, every four games on your team. Um, and it went down from there. Uh, actually, by, by the end of the season, it was, I think, under 0.4 violations per game, both teams combined. So players did adjust. And, and they also gave us a, a qualitative feedback as well that it wasn't, it's not just traced in violations because there's a comfort factor as well, that the violations were a good proxy for their comfort, that after about a three, four weeks of playing under the pitch timer rules, it became second nature and not something they ever had to really think about again. Um, and that they, they adjusted their routines and their natural rhythms to coincide with uh, the parameters of the pitch clock. So I would just say to, you know, certainly it's, you know, we don't want players to ever feel uncomfortable on a big league diamond, but that, of course, there is going to be an adjustment period. And, and we hope that the adjustment period in the big leagues is as quick and as effective um, and as as complete as the one was in the minor leagues. And the early data shows that that is going to be the case, if not even better, because we're only four days into the pitch clock world and we're already at 0.8 violations, um, you know, per, per game with both teams combined. So, um, we're, we're, you know, we're less, we're less than, uh, that's fewer than half, um, of, of the violations that we had the first week in the minor leagues. Now we had the benefit of spring training, but still, if we're at 0.8 violations per game now, you know, that that's a pretty good indicator. We'll get down, you know, to less than half a, half a violation per game, I hope pretty quickly. And the thing about the timer to remember, I know I'm going off on a tangent here is that, you know, the, the, the ultimate goal is is essentially to have as few violations as possible and to have no one no one ever really noticed the timer uh, it's it's you want it to be like the 24 second shot clock in basketball or like the delay a game in in in, in the NFL where you know there's 0.5 delay a game penalties per game in the NFL it's not a big I've never heard anyone come back from an NFL game and say like, it was a great game, but the delay, delay of games ruined the whole thing. Like in <laughs> same, same with an NBA game, no one comes back and says like the shot clock ruined the game. They say, Man, that was an up and down game. Like teams were transitioning left and right. You know, I saw some unbelievable offensive performances. Um, so anyway, so I think, you know, the adjustment period should go well, violations will go down. I believe players will get more comfortable, but to the second point, um, if they don't, we want to hear, um, you know, about players' experiences and what what can't they adjust to, and what what uh, what is available in terms of improving the rule. Now, I don't think anything anything um, significant about the rule is going to change. Like, it, it, you know, I think this rule is working, right? And we're not we're not going to all of a sudden throw up our hands and say, you know what, no timer, uh, because the goals are I, I think are going to be accomplished, but. You know, we've already made changes to the rules based on player feedback. Um, you know, there's a there's a timeout available to, to every hitter for every single plate appearances, every single plate appearance. Pitchers can step off twice with impunity when runners are on base every single plate appearance. We added an additional mound visit. And I think players will learn to use their timeouts too at the right time when they need them. Um, pitchers will start stepping off when they need to. Managers are going to start to use that mound visit when they sense that you know they need a little bit of time. But um, as Commissioner Manfred said the other day, uh, you know it, it's unlikely that we got 
every single thing right about this. And that's important to stay in listening mode, see how, monitor how things play out, um, see where we are a couple months in and, and um, you know, make improvements as needed as, as we go. So that, that, I guess that's what I would say. All right. Let me ask you about one more aspect of the pitch clock. Um, our friend Ken Rosenthal wrote a column today in the athletic in which he looked at some of the most memorable postseason at bats of modern times with which obviously had no clock and he asked whether baseball should consider not using the clock in the postseason or maybe even just in the late innings in the postseason much the way it doesn't have the extra inning rule in effect in the postseason is there any likelihood that that could happen yeah I, i'm not the right person to answer that and i guess i'll just fall back on on the second half of my last answer which is that you know the commissioner said the other day that it's important that we pay attention and monitor, you know, um, how, how the 2023 season plays out. And we'll, you know, we'll all be watching those, those <laughs> late and close situations. And um, from what I've seen so far, like, sure, it's different when a pitch is being delivered, you know, um, at, at, at this improved cadence in late innings as, you know, and as opposed to being really drawn out, Personally, so far, I haven't sensed any diminution in the drama. Like the drama and, and the intrigue is still there. It's just coming at you um, a little bit quicker than it did before. But I don't know if that's the right answer. We're gonna we're gonna see how things play out. And you know, the commissioner um, expressed uh, you know a, a willingness to continue to listen and make adjustments. We're just we're four days into the season, so. Um, <laughs> One of the great things about baseball is is you know the 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 drawn out tension and anxiety and of the late of the late and close situations and it 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 I think does that far better than any other sport and we're not going to lose that whether um, and I'm not sure we have in a pitch timer world but if something if something's lost and can be gained with with a small adjustment it's it's great that you know the commissioner and everyone involves. Um, open and willing to continue to listen and make sure we get the rules just right. Well, Theo, you know, the, you mentioned a couple of times about, you know, the trajectory of this, uh, how, how will you know when you got to where you want to be? Is there, is there a certain number of games? Is it certain number of like, how do you, how will you be able to sense the, okay, I think we, we have this where we need to be and yeah, we'll make small adjustments, but is there some measure that you're looking at? Um, well, I mean, there's a few ways to answer that. There's, you know, as far as the data goes, different different metrics have um, um, stabilized at different rates or, or after different sample sizes. So there, there are certain metrics where you don't need a huge sample size to be able to draw, you know, somewhat of a conclusion about where this might end up. Others, um, you know, require a much greater sample size. So we do have um, you know, some smart people in the league office looking at that and crunching the numbers every single day. There's a report that goes out about, um, you know, the, that day's um, pitch clock data and the impact on gameplay, what it might mean, and lots of different committees, including some folks from clubs um, work, working on it. So, uh, you know, I think we'll, we'll know when, when, when the, when the quants tell us that we can draw some conclusions, we'll start to, to draw some <laughs> conclusions from a data standpoint, but um, you know, looking at it more qualitatively, um, I don't think it ever really ends. I think, I think 
we'll know we're getting close when, you know, the fans tell us, you know, literally tell us, but then also tell us through, you know, the amount that they're tuning into games and walking through the turnstiles that they really love the product. And then no, no matter how much improvement we see in fan engagement and, um, we're still going to send out surveys and still going to listen to fans because there's going to be, you know, continued improvements that we can make. And the game's constantly changing. You know, if the last 10 to 20 years have proven anything is that the game's going to change no matter what, whether, whether we pass rule changes or we don't pass any rule changes for a decade, <laughs> the game's going to change because players and teams are going to find new strategies and new ways to optimize performance, use tech data and technology in different ways that change the way the game is played. So we have to be very, uh, careful stewards of the game, make sure we monitor that and continue to put guardrails in place only when necessary to make sure the best elements of the game um, uh, show up on a nightly basis for our fans. And that if there are things our fans don't like, we try to make sure, you know, they don't, they don't become too big a part of the game. And then listening to the players too, you know, these rule changes won't be successful if players can't play at their best. We have, you know, the best athletes, ever to play baseball or playing right now. We have some incredible, the, the amount of talent in, in the game right now is just mind blowing, including a lot of young talent, including a lot of young talent that's come up with some of these rules in the minor leagues that'll be more used to it, but got to continue to listen to players to make sure they're comfortable and can play at a high level. So when, when all those factors come together, you know, fan response, uh, player comfort and collaboration and, and the data, um, you know, we'll know we're on the right track. Okay, we've touched on base stealing. Um, let's look at it a little bit. Uh, first weekend last year, there were 29 stolen bases. The first weekend this year, with almost the same number of games, there were 70 with at an 83% success rate. Uh, at this rate, we'd have about 1,000 more steals than last year. And here's my question. If the success rate is going to be this high, could we have even more base stealing than what we've seen so far? Yeah. Well, I think it's important to put all of that in, in context. Um, so you just listening to you, I would think that, you know, the games in the last four days have just been this track meet where there's like nothing, <laughs> nothing, but you know, every game would be an Orioles game with this 10, you know, five, five stolen bases a game and everyone's safe the entire time. So far we've had a grand total of 1.6, stolen base attempts per game combined with, yeah. with both teams, which to me is, is not excessive at all. And then especially if you, if you put that in historical context, so that, you know, that's 1.6 stolen base attempts per game, both teams combined last year, we had, you know, 1.3 in the 2010s, when I think most people agree there, you know, there wasn't quite enough base stealing. It was 1.55. In the 2000s, an era when, you know, there was a good amount of stealing, but nothing crazy at all. It was 1.63. You know, if you go back, what, what was the, the golden age of base stealing? I think it was the, the 1980s, right? In the 1980s, we had 2.27 stolen base attempts per game. So we're at, we're at 1.6. We're nowhere close to even where we were in the 1980s. So look, if this, if, if stolen base attempts, um, continue to to rise i think that's a good thing but as far as it being too much like wake wake me up when when <laughs> we've left the 1980s in the dust because I, I don't know too many baseball fans who were alive in the 80s who ever complained about vince coleman 
or Ricky Henderson or Tim Raines, right? Those are like the favorite players of a, of a lot of fans from the 80s. So if we get to 2.27 stolen base attempts per game, then we can start to talk about like, hey, what's what's the what's sort of the magic number here? What's the target? But um, right now, I think it's a great thing. As far as the success rate, yes, right now, the success rate is sky high. It's 85%. It's important to put that in context too. We've had some of the highest success rates, stolen base success rates in the history of baseball the last couple of years before any pitch timer rules, before any disengagement rules, before bigger bases were a reality. Some of the highest in baseball history. Why? Because teams were afraid to run unless they knew they were <laughs> going to be safe. And to <laughs> me, that's that's not the best version of baseball either. It was teams were barely running, 1.3 attempts per game, both teams combined, and, and they were only running when they knew they'd be safe because you can quantify everything these days. You, you knew how long it took your runner to get to second base. You knew um, how long it took the pitcher to deliver the ball to home plate. You knew the catcher's pop time. You put it all together. You knew what the run environment was. You know what the break-even point is. And you'd only give the green light when it was mathematically the right thing to do. Great, but also kind of boring. So the fact that 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 now you're going to have teams pushing the envelope and trying to find where that equilibrium is, I'm sure the stolen base success rate is going to go up and then it's going to go down and then it'll probably go up again. But I'm honestly more concerned with the amount of attempts because fans told us they love stolen base activity. You know, when, when you... We all played pickle growing up, right? And what, what what's, what's the best part of pickle? It's it's the daring, it's the bang bang play, the sliding, the tag. Like that's why fans love stolen bases to see that kind of athleticism and daring on display. So, uh, I'm sorry, but spare me spare me the complaints about 1.6 stolen base attempts per game. Um, I love it, and I think fans love fans love it more importantly. And it's great that we're going to see you know more of it when when you go to the ballpark. Yeah, I had a friend of mine text me over the weekend who must not have watched much spring training and said, oh, my God, it's way too easy to steal a base. They got to fix that. <laughs> and so I'm curious how teams are going to control the running game. And so I was going to ask this, but I know Doug wants to ask about the play, the Trey Turner play on Sunday Night Baseball. He's he's all worked up about that. So, Doug, go ahead. Yeah. Well, <laughs> go ahead I mean, you're, speak, you're speaking my language, Theo. I mean, you know, the, the idea of encouraging the running game. And just getting away from this, you know, total risk-averse approach to it, right? We're inspired by the minority report, the low percentage Tom Lawless home run in the World Series. You know, we loved it, Ozzie Smith, right? But um, but it, uh, this play was when Trey Turner was at first, Martin Perez was pitching, and Jonah Heim was catching. And I think Heim called the timeout as the clock was going down, but Turner had already taken off. And so I, I think they determined it was a timeout and – Turner was sent back, even though he had this monstrous jump. But in the process, the clock also ran out. <laughs> so, so it was like, okay, I didn't know what was yeah, going on. But really, that play actually, <laughs> my understanding is that play had nothing to do with the clock. Like the old the old rules about timeout, timeouts, yeah. and whether the umpire is going to grant a timeout or not based on, you know, where the pitcher is and set set and about to deliver and what's going on on the bases. That, that hasn't changed. So it's up to the umpire whether he's going to grant time or Wait, not. even so, with two seconds left on the clock? Pretty, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, after, yeah. That's up to the umpire whether he's going to grant or not. I thought. See, I thought that was a violation to call timeout that late. It's not up, on the catcher, though, huh? Well, well, no, there could be a valid reason to call timeout. Hmm. 
You could have something yeah, in your eye. There could be a distraction on the field. It's up to the umpire whether to 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 grant that. Yeah, I just wonder as like a base dealer. Like, I mean, it makes sense watching it, and it's been fascinating just observing and calling these games. But it's like you know, as the clock gets down to two, I'm gonna go. Like, so is there is there like a priority of like, okay, I take off, and then the clock runs out. What happens in that situation? Does it is it a is it a ball? Or you get the steal, or like once he starts running, well, it wait, that's different because before, in reality, yeah. it was a situation of uh, a batter requesting time. Um, yeah, and the timeout was granted. If the clock runs out, um, if but I'm the already clock gone. Runs out on the pitcher, my understanding would that would be a violation. Yeah. So, that's so even if I took off, even me? if I took off, is it like is it a, like if I took off? I had this great jump, but then the clock runs out. Yeah, I guess I'll have to, I'll, I'd have to research that and get back to you. But <laughs> my understanding is if, yeah, that would still be, unless the pitcher steps off, which would be in disengagement. Yeah, that, that it would be, if the if the pitcher's set, I think that would still be a disengagement. But it's also like if you, if you, <laughs> you are so on to him. <laughs> right. Oh, I'm, I'm conceding this point, but I, I think the, like the balk versus the stolen base, like selfishly, you're like, I want the bag, right? Even though like the punishment is yeah. maybe the same. No, we considered like, at one point, you know, the disengagement, the third disengagement violation of which I think we've yeah. only had one so far this year. But there was a time when we considered the idea of letting that count as a stolen base. Yeah. So that's honor, what I'm talking to, about. To incentivize. I think for for some other reasons, what, I think we decided that that wouldn't be possible. You know, we touched on the, the impact of, uh, of the clock and no shift on offense and, the numbers are pretty compelling. A batting average on balls and play back over 300. Uh, it had been 290. Uh, left-handers batting average on balls and play pulled ground balls up 27 points. Uh, pulled ground balls 90 miles an hour exit velocity or higher up almost 30 points. Uh, one of the things that struck me, hard hit ground balls up the middle up 22 points. Um, you know, it, it, this seems like the Theo vision. Am I right? That, the, no, that these not, not these my, are hits again. Yeah, it's not my it's not my vision at all. There's, there's literally, you know, dozens of people just at MLB yeah, Central Baseball is working on this, plus the Joint Competition Committee and everybody else. But that's a good example. The hits up the middle. That's a good example of um, you know us needing to take a step back and get a big sample size and see how things are going to play out because. Uh, you wrote about this last year. We talked about this last year. You know, um, the way we designed the, the shift restriction still allows for the offside middle infielder, so say the shortstop with the left-handed hitter up, to play just up to but not over the bag at second base. So still in a position where he could feel the hard-hit ground ball that's that's right over the mound and, and, and right over second base. And there was some concern that that meant that we weren't going to do enough under this iteration of the rule to open up the middle of the field and, and, and reward hitters who have a good approach and hit a, a, you know, one hard one hopper up the middle, for example. And so we tested an alternate version of the rule on a really small sample last year, where in addition to the depth restriction and the two infielders on either side of second base, we also had a no fly zone of sorts right behind <laughs> second base that looked like a the, the pizza, pie slice. pizza slice or a trivial yeah. pursuit wedge right behind <laughs> second base. And um, 
We didn't do enough testing to draw any conclusions about it, but it's something that we're going to continue to test this year at some point in the, in the Florida State League, I believe. Just, just in the event that as the 2023 season played out, we realized that, hey, we're, we haven't opened up enough of the field. There, there's not enough base hits up the middle, and that's not the perfect version of the anti-ship restriction. So, you know, uh, I appreciate your enthusiasm four days in about the, <laughs> the middle, but Thank you. we're, we're going to sit back and wait and, you know, see where we are four weeks, four months into the season and continue to test alternatives in case there's a way that that rule can be improved. All right. So why don't we overreact four days into the strikeout rate and the walk rate, which are both. Um, and I, I know the hope based on the experience in the minor leagues was that we might see both of those rates come down. Have we learned anything at all about the, the strikeout rate in particular? Because if, if we're still going to have a record number of strikeouts, doesn't that counteract the impact of the shift, the shift, the no shift? It doesn't counter. It doesn't counteract the impact. Because, like, just imagine a world with a a record number of strikeouts and none of the other rule changes, right? And that's what we're yeah, we lived in that world. That'd be far worse. <laughs> yeah, we lived in, in that world to an extent. Um, look, I think it's it, the strikeout rate. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard to peg it as a product of of the pitch timer because so many other things go into it. For example, I think that foreign substance enforcement is a bigger determinant of the strikeout rate than the pitch timer because you can you can just about prove that because um, if you look at a, a chart of the strikeout rate um in in uh, during during the season when when the um foreign substance enforcement rules and the and the pitcher checks were announced and then rolled out it fell off a cliff and it and it, and it dropped a couple percentage points in a really meaningful way. And then over time, as those checks became a little bit more rote and pitchers found ways to, you know, navigate, um, uh, I'll just say better grip, um, you know, um, despite those rules and found a way to pitch in the new world, the strikeout rate went back up. So it's, you know, in a world where we're still trying to figure out foreign substance enforcement, we're still trying to figure out how to give pitchers a, a baseball they can command, but, you know, without maybe spinning it to such otherworldly levels that it results in unhittable stuff. I think it's hard to, to sort of peg anything directly on the strikeout rate. But look, you're talking to maybe the, um, you know, the person who most often jumps on a soapbox about uh, our need to to rope, to rein in the strikeout rate. Like, you know, we talk about the best version of baseball. The best version of baseball does not have a 23% strikeout rate. You know, it has a strikeout rate that's that's well under 20% and we have to, we have to find a way to get there. And was there some hope and is there still some hope that the, um, the pitch timer regulations and some of the other new rules might lead to a world where there are fewer strikeouts? Yes. You know, very early returns counting spring training and, and the first few games of the season don't indicate that, but again, it's far, far too early to tell, but there are a lot of other things being discussed and worked on and experimented with behind the scenes, including in labs um, you know, that that hopefully long term will help create an environment where the strikeout rate is greatly reduced and the balls in play a lot more often. Or when you say labs, I think you're talking about a new baseball, right? A, a baseball that's a little tackier and you're going to test that in the minor league. Yeah. So there's, the, yeah, a couple things. There's there's uh, um, the possibility of uh, an enhanced grip baseball that, you know, would mean the baseball wouldn't have to get 
uh, rubbed up with mud and would still provide adequate grip for the pitcher to command the ball, but maybe wouldn't be a baseball that's capable of being spun at these crazy levels and seeing, you know, these unhittable, you know, 92 mile an hour sliders that, you know, break more than any, any other slider in history is harder than any other slider in history and helps contribute to the strikeout rate. There's also, you know, some, some other, other, uh, ways to, to potentially use the ball to improve contact. Just what you said, the enhanced grip ball, since it doesn't need to be rubbed up, it's whiter and brighter than the baseball you see in play in the big leagues. Now that's rubbed up and, um, in a very small sample in the minor leagues, when we used the bright white or brighter white enhanced grip baseball, we saw strikeouts go down and we saw contact go up. So obviously strikeouts and contact rates, a function, not just of the stuff, the nasty stuff that modern pitchers are delivering, but also hitter bat to ball skills, hitter approach and everything else and, and hit hitter pitch recognition and tracking. And so if you create a baseball, that's maybe easier to, um, pick up it's easier to recognize spin and easier to track maybe that contributes in lowering the strikeout rate or percentage point or two so yeah i'm not going to get into everything we're doing but there's 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 a lot of um thought being put into you know how how to help the hitter um make more contact you know in in the future going forward and then you know, also, yes, maybe, maybe level the playing field, you know, with pitch with pitchers a little bit as needed so that, you know, we're not at this point where the average major league pitcher is striking out far more batters than Bob Gibson. Uh, in his <laughs> so. uh, I was thinking about research a little bit is, are there any, in terms of reading material and you mentioned about, you know, best versions of the game. I mean, I'm sure a lot of it is data, but are there any storytelling examples of books you've read or research you've done that kind of crystallizes a vision for you? Um, I think the most important reading material is really the testimonials from our fans. You know, we did not only surveys and polling, but also focus groups and interviews. And so that that's, that's been really meaningful. And then the testimonials from the minor league players who, who and coaches who played under the new rules. So that stuff's really important, but Look, I think um, you know, when I was talking earlier about fans' reactions to the pace of play and the aesthetics of the game and what they're seeing, I think I used the words like visceral and emotional, but it's also really like romantic in a way, right? Like we're all, we're all, um, we all fell in love with the game with the game at a certain point in time, and usually that's the version that resonates most with you, you know, when you were 12 years old, well, it was the 86 season when I was 12 years old. And so I also learned what it's like to have your heart broken when the, when the ball <laughs> rolled through Bill Buckner's legs. But um, so we have to, I think, tap into that on one hand. And, you know, I think, I think it's important to recognize, you know, to sort of like be in touch with those emotions of what we love about the game and why, but also recognize it as a limitation, like not everyone loves the same version of baseball that I love. And, and my kids now, uh, they're, they're 15 and eight. Um, so 12, 12 year old would be right in the middle of that, but, um, you know, they have different sensibilities and like different things about the game and a different style of play than I had when I was 12. So, you know, we, we can't rely on simply like our own remembrances of what was great about the game or, or you know, the, the, the baseball now, I, you know, you asked about reading material. I love the, the John R. Tunis trilogy about baseball, the kid from Tompkinsville. Um, 
World Series and and uh, what was it? The kid comes back, and so like that's that's you know that informs like my romantic um, notions about baseball. It doesn't mean anything to my kids. I tried to get my oldest son to read it like five times. He read about five pages. I just terrible and threw it down. So you know, everyone's different. I think I think we have to just listen. More, you know, more important than like any one individual's reliance on memory or reading materials, just listening, being in touch with the modern fan, understanding that fans all look for something different in the game. They're all product of their own experiences, appreciate the game differently. Just try to try to help promote the best the, the version of baseball that appeals to the most fans and and makes fans the happiest as a whole well theo is there one is there one testimonial that stood out or anything that stood out of what a fan relayed to you um i think it's just just the you know it's hard it's hard to find consensus among fans about you know what what they like about the game but look some fans love strikeouts right like the strikeouts are, are awesome you know i i, I remember listening to the radio around the kitchen table for Roger Clemens 20 strikeout game, you know, as, as, as a kid in his first one. And, and so, you know, and some fans just love strikeouts. I'm not saying like all fans want more balls in play. <laughs> There's not someone out there who says like, no, I want to see as many strikeouts as possible. I want to see as many 103 mile per hour pitches as possible. I want to see 450 foot home runs. That's all I care about is like, you know, those extreme events. There are fans out there like that, but as a whole, it was this consensus that we want to see more action. We want to see it more frequently. We want to see more athleticism. And to me, like the, just personally, the most powerful testimonials have actually been from like the crust, the crustiest, most old school baseball people (laughs) that I've known throughout my career, people who wanted, you know, no part of any kind of a clock in baseball uh, and, and, and weren't shy about telling me that I want, you know, no part of some of these rule changes, um, bigger bases, crazy, shift restrictions, nuts, uh, pitch timer, you're ruining the game. And then, you know, seeing a few minor league games last year, um, calling me up and saying like, we need this in the big leagues tomorrow. <laughs> like, I, I can't believe, you know, I can't believe where we've gotten to and we need, we need this immediately. And then same thing happened in spring training this year. And then phone's been blown up again this year. Obviously it's a, there's a selection bias, in there, you know, with uh, who's in my phone, who's calling me or whatever, but <laughs> yeah, some old school baseball people um, who probably haven't liked any changes to the game, you know, in, in the last many decades are into this restored pace of play and, you know, seeing ball and play with, you know, single stolen bases, seeing infielders on the spot, seeing athleticism. It just, the games felt different. You know, the friend, then I was at opening day in Yankee stadium sitting in the stands and, you know, you know how you, you could always hear the conversations going on around you, especially the row sitting right behind you. And fans were just really into it. You know, we had a ton of, we had a lot of strikeouts that game. The ball wasn't in play that much, but the pace was awesome. Um, and fans were really into the improved pace of play and, and, and how quickly the action was coming at them. So that, that was great to hear firsthand too. Look, there's some fans that want the games to last longer so they can drink more beer and eat more hot dogs. <laughs> so you can't keep everybody happy, but Never. I, you know, I can't let you go without at least asking about what's next. And commissioner had some interesting stuff to say last week about the future of the electronic strike zone. Well, what do you think are the biggest obstacles to seeing some version of the electronic strike zone in the big leagues say by next opening day? 
Yeah. Well, I'm going to definitely take my lead from the commissioner on this one. You know, he, he talked about how there's a real need to learn more about uh, automated balls and strikes. And, and I, I second that. And I'm really excited that we are going to learn so much more. Our knowledge about um, what ABS means and the impact of ABS is going to increase exponentially this year because we we have um, full ABS in all 30 AAA ballparks. And we're going to do a thorough, uh, balanced test and vetting of both the full ABS system and the challenge ABS system. And both systems have pros and both systems have cons. So we have to determine, A, um, what's the appropriate system to potentially consider initially in, in the majors? And, and more importantly, is it worth considering either system in the big leagues or is status quo better with human umpires? So you asked what are the biggest um, you know, potential obstacles you know, I think it's I think it's probably best addressed by looking at each system, full ABS and and um, and challenge ABS. Like with full ABS, you know, it, it's a pretty big step to fully eliminate the human element. Uh, it's, it's a it's a big part of the game. The home plate umpire is an important figure in the game. Does a lot and probably a lot more than people recognize to manage the game um, beyond just calling balls and strikes and safe and out at home plate. So. Um, yes, there will still be a human umpire uh, in a full ABS world, but diminishes the the role of the human being in the adjudication of the game. That's a pretty big deal to go from, you know, uh, zero to sixty. You know, from from all all human umpires to full ABS right away. Um, there are some unintended consequences that come with full ABS. For example, you know, you're you're basically eliminating catching framing completely out of the game. You know, and throughout baseball history, how a catcher presented the pitch was, an, and how the catcher received was an important part of the game. And there are a lot of players who who make their living, um, in in part or even in full, in some cases, because of their excellence at that skill. So that's that's an important unintended consequence to consider. Um, there's a chance that full ABS would increase um, the the rate of strikeouts and the rate of walks because uh, you know. Uh, 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 Autom automated strike zone doesn't care if you're in a blowout game. It's only going to call a strike if it's within the if it's absolutely within the strike zone. And and um, you know an automated automated um, strike zone is a complete rectangle where the the human the human strike zone is a lot more like an oval. Where you know fans and players alike are not used to seeing strikes called on those extreme fringe pitches just on the corner up and in or just on the corner down and away, those are traditionally balls and they would be strikes. So it's not probably not worth putting in a system that would dramatically spike strikeouts and walks when we're trying to get the ball and play more. Uh, and then that, you know, the inelasticity prolongs blowout games, you know, we're an elastic strike zone from human umpire makes them go quicker. You know, frankly, we've, we've pulled um, uh, players uh, who played under full ABS system and they don't, they don't love it. You know, play, uh, players and even fans don't really love so the current version of what full ABS looks like. Maybe that'll change as, as we improve it. Um, and then, you know, you, you, you're there's, there's the possibility of being over reliant, overly reliant on technology um, as well in a full ABS world. The system goes down. You have now you have a home plate umpire who hasn't called balls and strikes for four months. Yeah. <laughs> the Wi-Fi goes out, technology goes out <laughs> in the ballpark and you're asking the home plate umpire to call 
the game again. So that that's those are some of the cons of a full ABS system, and and some of those considerations uh, help motivate this idea that um, that we thought of of the challenge system, which is based in part on like observing tennis and how they initially went to the challenge system. Where for those who don't know, the challenge system involves um, the home plate umpire, the human being still calling balls and strikes, but the ABS system running in the background. And each team would have three challenges per game uh, where they could appeal to ABS to review the umpire's call. It happens virtually instantaneously, less than five seconds from beginning to end. And what the challenge system does is it we you know potentially preserves the best parts of having a human umpire while also gives, giving you some of the important benefits of of the technology and and you know with in a challenge system done correctly you would fix the egregious misses so just the obvious misses where you know a guy misses you know a guy throws a, a pitch a foot outside and it's called a strike well you should instantly challenge that and have it corrected and then you retain your challenge because if you're correct you keep your challenges you only lose them if you're wrong so it would fix the egregious misses and then it could fix the high leverage misses the really important misses um and and that was really the you know the motivation for replay in the first place it wasn't necessarily to get every single call correct all the time. It was to make sure you got the big call, you fix the really egregious misses, and you got the big calls right. And replays kind of evolved in a way that hasn't hasn't lived up to that. You know, depending how you look at it. But you know, a challenge system that's the motivation: preserve the human element, um, get get the egregious misses corrected, get the big big calls right. But it comes with its own set of potential drawbacks as well. Um, the first, what we just said, doesn't get every call right. You know, there are some some fans out there, some, prize, you know, some players out there that want just every single call to be correct. If it's in the rectangle, it's a strike. If it's not, it's a ball no matter what. Challenge system doesn't necessarily do that. It only gets, you know, the calls right that are, that are challenged. Um, it's got the potential conceivably to slow the game down if too high a number of pitches are challenged. Uh, you have to monitor for... For sort of cheating and other sort of abuses of technology, you know, because you're you're doing this in, in real time, um, you'd have to, you know, build a little bit of latency into the system, and um, you know, there'd be potentially some changes to the broadcast and things like that. So, the bottom line is we don't know whether baseball is better with or without ABS, and and if it's with ABS, whether we're better to do full ABS or challenge, but I think a lot of those questions are going to start to be answered this year in AAA, and uh, it'll be fun to talk to players, talk to fans, talk to umpires, and dig into the data, see if we can start to make this muddy picture a little bit more clear. Um, and again, you know, you, you should only make changes if it makes the game better. It's pretty clear with the pitch timer what, what we're solving for, right? Fans like games that are two hours and 30 minutes. They like a great pace of play. They like that better than a world where the average game is three hours, 10 minutes, and there's a lot of standing around. But you have to figure out exactly what you're solving for with ABS. You don't want to force a solution without a problem. You, just, you want better umpiring. You want every single call to be right. Do you want a more level playing field? What What's the exact thing you're solving for? That's important to figure out. And then you can go about seeing if there's a, a great and appropriate solution. And, and you know, you, you, you kind of zip by this, but isn't there also this, this issue of what's a strike? 
what the computer thinks is a strike versus what the hitter and the pitcher have come to think through their whole lifetime is a strike? Yeah, there is. But um, I actually heard you talking about this the other day. I think it was you. And you mentioned that, you know, there's this problem with ABS that there's still all these like breaking balls that just touch the very yeah right very bottom of the zone, end up in the dirt, but they're called strikes by the system or, or the, the opposite, the hanger, the high breaking ball. That, that that's a bad pitch and a hanger, but it just comes down at the very back of the plate and hits the top of the zone. Now all of a sudden that's a strike. And those are pitches that have never been strikes before. And now they are, we, 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 I think we've come a long way. The technology is now really good. Like we, we went away from a three-dimensional strike zone with ABS to a two-dimensional strike zone and set it at the middle of the plate. And that really helped create better outcomes for what's a strike in a ball with all different types of pitches. So you know, a fastball that carries through the zone at the knees is still a strike, but the breaking ball that ends up in the dirt that maybe clipped the very front of the plate is no longer a strike. So there's a real improvement in there. We saw that in the minor leagues last year. So technology is really good, like within a tenth of an inch. And we've gotten smarter about how to use it to, to get calls right. You're still going to have the one that still stands out is the miss. So when you have a catcher who's set up in, you're trying to throw a fastball in and crowd the hitter the pitcher misses by 17 inches now the catcher stabs for the ball at the last second and it looks like he he barely caught a ball that was like a foot outside well in reality if that ball caught that caught the outside edge of the plate that's a strike but no one in the ballpark thinks that's a strike except maybe the pitcher <laughs> but the hitter doesn't think it's a strike the umpire doesn't think it's a strike the fans don't think it's a strike the tv broadcast doesn't think it's a strike <laughs> But technically it's a strike, but that's a good example. Like, do you want that pitch called a strike or not? Because human umpires are not going to call that a strike because it doesn't look like a strike has never been a strike, but you could argue that it shouldn't matter how the catcher receives the ball, whether he frames it perfectly or whether it's a desperation stab from 19 inches away when he's set up in off the plate. So look that we're going to learn, learn the answer to that question and many more, I think by, uh, by observing AAA this year. I'm, I'm excited about, all of that. Um, hey, can't let you leave without playing America's favorite game. Know your <laughs> Theo Epstein trivia. No, I, and, I, 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 asked, I asked that there would be no trivia and especially no uh, sort of self-indulgent trivia. So <laughs> do I get an exemption? <laughs> this is going to be so easy. Don't you always get these right? <laughs> I think you're no. no. Lifeline. We can call Lifeline. All right. Let, I'll tell you what we'll do. Um We'll help. We can I, help. I, won't, I like we'll apply the Glanville rule where you won't have to get every answer. Okay. <laughs> like, and if I don't you, get it, we edit it out. Okay. You were you were uh, all right. It's a deal. You're with the Red Sox. What ten years? Cubs? Was it nine years? I think. Does that yeah. sound right? Nine years. Nine years of GM of the Red Sox. Ten years total. Nine years with the Cubs. Yeah. Uh, okay. So in your time with the Red Sox and your time with the Cubs, there there are only four players who got a hit for your Red Sox and your Cubs teams. So I'm not going to ask you to name all four, but it's a really funky list. How about you try to name two of them? How about that? Ugh, Red Sox and Cubs. Okay. <laughs> Darnell McDonald is definitely one. He's definitely one. Yep. Um, good one, good one. Let's see. Uh, it's a funky list. Um, <laughs> David Ross. David Ross is correct. See, well, it's easy to play. Got, Rossi got any hits in his first Red Sox. <laughs> he got, he got one hit some... for the Red Sox while you were there. One. How many? 
one. One, I see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he was a trick, trick uh, answer. <laughs> hey, there was one pitcher. You'll get him. Uh, Think John Lackey? Yeah, because you know Lester never got a hit. Yeah, okay. So Lackey, Lackey who's, who's going to give me a hint about the fourth guy? Uh, the fourth guy, nobody would remember him except except you. He was a Red Sox draft pick, uh, pretty high pick, and then just kind of wound up with the Cubs later. He got 41 hits for the Red Sox while you were there and 32 for the Cubs. What, what position did he play? Oh, Ryan Kalish. Ryan Kalish. You got it. See, you nailed this. I knew you would. Uh, Theo knows all. that We just proved it. We just proved it. Hey, man, we could talk to you about this stuff all day long, but um, you, you, you've got a sport to help um, fit a vision that you and others have been trying to, to reach, and we're seeing it happening. So thank you for doing that. Thank That's you for a good thing. Us. We'll see you, see you back Thank in Starfield next opening day. Me. I, I get a brief closing statement because yes, number of times throughout this podcast, you've said, you know, Theo vision and what <laughs> you were hoping for and things. So I, I get the ability to say like, I am really um, a proud of the industry, uh, you know, for not that anyone's, you know, to go to a different sport spike in the football. Cause we have, we have a long way to go and a lot of things are going to go wrong, but it's been amazing to see, the attitude the players have had, what they've had to deal with, counting the minor league players having to, you know, try to try to advance their careers and 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 get to the big leagues playing under rules that were you want to talk about new rules. They were really new when they were playing under them and, and including a bunch of rules that didn't work out. So credit to the players, um, their their open mindedness, their flexibility, their ability to still play at a world class level, even with a changing rule environment around them. Um, the clubs, you know, for really digging in this off season and spring training and, and helping their players understand the new rules and, and help, you know, prepare them to, to play and win um, in, in a new rule environment. And then, um, you know, the players association, their cooperation with the, the joint competition committee, the umpires have been incredible. Uh, Bill Miller is the umpire rep on the committee, but they studied these rules intensely uh, in the off season and, and spring training. You know, obviously we all improved during the course of spring training, but they just did a great job getting ready for opening day. We're asking umpires to do so much more now than they've ever had to do in the past. And then, you know, uh, Commissioner Manfred and his staff at the commissioner's office, uh, Morgan Swords Department, and I work closely with Morgan, Mike Hill, Joe Martinez, Reed McPhail, among others, Dan Halem. You know, they worked their tails off uh, to make sure this thing went well. Because you, you mentioned it earlier, but, you know, there's a lot of holding your breath when you're making changes to this great game and you want to make sure things go well. So it's been such a massive industry-wide team effort. I'm, I'm privileged to play a small part in it and just have a seat at the table, but hats off to everyone involved. And hopefully, you know, we're delivering a better product for, for our fans and we'll continue to try to, you know, monitor and, and do our best to help deliver a great product to our fans going forward. They have great closing statement. Yeah. Um, great yeah. having you here. Uh, so we could just pencil you in for next opening day. In Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. And uh, I should have mentioned too, because he's done. He never talks about it himself uh, or talks about himself. But John Stanton, who's the uh, head of that comp joint composition committee of the Mariners, did a great job bringing everyone together at the table, including reaching out to the players. So I don't want don't want to forget him. But yeah, let's do it. Let's do it next year. Hopefully, we're talking about um, a great 2023 season. 
maybe we're talking about even more balls in play and certainly will be, you know, I'm sure you'll be digging into the data telling us what, <laughs> what went right, what went wrong. And, and most importantly to you, what was idiosyncratic out there? And, and, <laughs> right. And right. Be complaining about, you know, limitations on stolen bases and so forth. Oh, open it up. Open it up. <laughs> I spared Everything you so much there. idiosyncratic on this show. So much. <laughs> you did. All right, guys. Thanks. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job Job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Okay, it's that time again. It's time for Listener Trivia, our way of involving you, our favorite listeners in this show. Doug, I don't even know why we're doing this segment anymore. We should just retire from trivia right now after our undefeated spring training, don't you think? I mean, amazing. Well, the Royals were what? They were like 20-0 and 0 in spring training, and it hasn't gone very well so far. So it's a different season, so That's I'm going to respect that. <laughs> but I'm um, rooting for the Royals to get on back on track. Yeah, spring training results are not a guarantee of future results in the season. <laughs> so we're about to prove that, I'm going to guess, for the next six months. Anyway, we, we asked you listeners for opening day type questions. And we had some really fun ones, as usual. None better than the question submitted by this week's special trivia guest star. It's Jeff Gow. So, Jeff. Welcome back to Starkville. Uh, I believe you were here several years ago, right? Uh, remind us how that went. Yeah, it was a few years ago. First of all, thanks uh, thanks for inviting me on, you guys. And uh, yeah, uh, welcome. I was right at the end of 2020 World Series. It was a question on uh, pitchers who last who ended the World Series and also started a game in that World Series. And you guys got like twice the number of guesses. Uh, yeah, we were on fire on that yeah. day. Yeah. We yeah. can get we guess a lot. Yeah, we changed the rules since then. Yeah. That was the that was the devious Glanville cheating scheme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you guys got it, but I'm um, hoping to uh, stump you guys this time. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, sounds good, Jeff. Again, just remind everybody where you're from, what team you root for, all the important stuff. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm an economist and wannabe science fiction novelist from up here in Canada. So uh, I've been a diehard Blue Jays fan for about a quarter century now. Uh, things are looking pretty good this year. Not so much after the first weekend, but uh, no, it's a, it's a long season. So yeah. <laughs> it is a long season. Yeah, it is. Um, all right, listen, we've stalled about as long as we can get away with stalling. Uh, it's time to put our trivia streak 
on the line. Yeah. So Jeff, hit us with your questions. We can get uh, get the getting it wrong part over with. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, with opening day, we always associate opening day with the start of something. So thought it'd be cool if I turned it on its head and instead asked about opening day as the end of something. So <laughs> this question is pretty straightforward. Basically, the question is, in all of baseball history, there's been exactly one former MVP and one former Cy Young winner who played the final game of their career in a season opening series. So can mm -hmm. you name those two can you name those two players? Okay. And just tweet. as a hint, had a, he, had a, yeah. he had a hint in there too. So. Yeah, just as a hint, both of these last games took place in the wild card era. So uh since 1995. Okay. So we have an an MVP and a mm -hmm. Cy Young playing their final games of their career in the season opening series. Good one. Good question. Season um, opening. Okay, so luckily, oh. I know, Doug, mm. you were stumped, but I know one of these off the top of my head. The former yeah. MVP has to be Ichiro. Remember the, the Mariners opened the season in Japan a few years ago? Uh, so they took Ichiro with him. They kept him on the active roster just for that series, and then he retired. So he's mm. uh, he's one. He's got to be one. Um, the question is, who is the Cy Young? And like I'm pretty sure this is different. Uh, Ichiro, mm. that was a ceremonial thing. Felt uh, kind of like a career achievement award. With the Cy Young, I, I, I think it almost had to be because of an injury. But who was PEDs. that? Because Could be PED suspension. Did someone get suspended no, and then retire? No. 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 It's definitely possible. No. no. It's possible, but I, it, no. Um, so the question is, all right, I guess anything's possible, but just I was thinking along the lines of guys who got hurt. Doug, for some reason, that the, the name I thought of was Brandon mm. Webb. Remember Brandon Webb, right? He was oh, great. Yeah. Then he was hurt. Then he was gone. So I just have this this hunch about Brandon Webb uh, starting on opening day, getting Blowing hurt, out. never recovering, never pitching again. So mm. like, he's kind of my, my best bolt there. But there are a lot of choices because there's so many guys whose career ended with an injury. Like Cliff Lee felt like a guy like that. Felix, maybe. I can't remember if he made it out of spring training with the Braves. I thought about those two. Um, mm. Doug, I'm sure you've thought about this. What do you got? I mean, you're kind of on your own on this one now that I listen oh, really? to what you're thinking. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I think, well, okay, I guess one qualification or question is, is I mean, when we're saying retiring, it's like their last major league game because people make comebacks all the time. And so we're just saying last like major league appearance mm -hmm. was in that yeah, opening last series, major league okay. game, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, well, Cliff Lee and Felix is interesting. I mean, what? I mean, Brett, first of all, Brandon Webb was a nightmare. Okay, sinker baller. I never hit a sinker baller except fouled off my shin that or swing over the ball. High so ball just, hitter. Noted so, high ball hitter. So just just that alone would make me vote for him. Uh, but um, yeah, yeah, I know he did blow out and he just kept having injury problems. Right. And I don't know if he ever made back. But um, yeah, I didn't even know he was a Cy Young Award winner. So that's another one I didn't know. So yeah, I, I have no idea. Out. Like Cliff, Cliff Lee, Felix Hernandez, those are interesting answers. But it, I, yeah. I mean, the, you know, Roger Clemens. How did he end? How did his career? Uh, end? How did Roger Clemens' career end? 
Uh, not well. There's a little no, no. Mitchell report scenario, right? Yeah. So just I me. Mean, Ooh, uh, Randy Johnson. I I don't know. I would like Mariano. Yeah, Randy. Oh, oh you know Randy what? I never Here, won here's a, wait. Here's a question. What about? No, maybe not. Kevin Brown was he a Cy Young winner? Because he he like went to Yankee. Remember he disappeared. He like told because I was I was with them in spring training in 04, 05. Yeah. And he was just like gone, right? He just like never came back. Did Kevin Brown win a Cy Young? I think he did not. Okay. I could be wrong. It's, like, it's really hard. That's one of the hard things about these questions is it's hard to keep straight in your head who did and didn't win these awards. Um, I think he was a, a close runner up, never got there. I, yeah. why, don't, why don't we just guess? Okay. Like, I don't really yeah. know. We have well, Ichiro for sure. On the Cy Young, we're just throwing darts. Want me to just guess? Yeah. Well, yeah. Go All ahead. Right, let's I, do mean, it. I, I can't help you. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks for playing. Um, I, I, I threw some names out there. <laughs> yeah, you did. Uh, Jeff, is there any chance that it's Ichiro and Brandon Webb? You guys got it. You guys got it. Oh, <laughs> <Jason> got it. <laughs> okay, that expression, you guys. <laughs> Wow, I'll take well, it though. Yeah, I, yeah. I didn't talk you out of it though. I didn't talk no, you out yeah, of it. That's exactly. Yeah, you get credit for that. <laughs> That's yeah. the good news. Um, okay, wow, I'm not gonna impressive. I'm, I'm, I don't even know if I know if I should allow Doug to take part in the rest of the show. <laughs> but Doug, look, this is ridiculous. We've now gotten wow. five in a row. Has Ooh. that ever happened? I mean, what was our longest streak before this? One. One and a half, I think. I think I always give myself half credit. <laughs> okay, you get no credit for this one. <laughs> Amazing. I'm like stunned. With Brandon Webb, wow, he was nasty. So, uh, so what, oh, what, yeah. what, Jeff, what happened what there happened? with Brandon Webb? Yeah, well, he won the 2006 Cy Young, had two runner-up seasons in 07-08, then pitched yes. opening day versus the Rockies, left after four innings with a shoulder injury, and uh, wow. never uh, never made his way back into, onto a mound. I I cannot believe that I remembered that. (laughs) I can't even explain it. Just one of those. That's just one of those absurd things that's rattling around my brain. I I, (laughs) I wish I knew why. I don't know why. Um, But look, here's the good news: we have made it through the worst portion of this segment, which is the part that involves us. (laughs) Now comes the best portion, the part where we bring in the mayor of Starkville, Tim McMaster, to play another classic play-by-play clip involving this week's answer. So, Tim, what do you got for us? So, a perfect spring training followed by 1-0 to start the season. Amazing. I mean, this is unprecedented Starkville. Texas Rangers. All right, so we're going to go back to... The good thing about this trivia question is we can actually have the moment, right? So, we're going to go back to March 21st, 2019, in Tokyo, Japan, Ichiro leaving the field for the final time. Scott Service has come out, and the Mariners players are going to gather. This will be the moment. For the final time, coming off a major league field. Going one by one. One final sayonara to all the fans here in Tokyo. One Hall of Famer hugging another. Soon to be 46,451 here tonight at the Tokyo Dome. And who knows how many watching around the world. This is emotional. 
Wow. I believe that was Dave Fleming and Eduardo. former Starkville citizen, Eduardo Perez. Yes. <laughs> and Jeff, that was an excellent question, man. I, I'm not sure how I got it right, but uh, we <laughs> loved it. Thanks so much for joining us again in Starkville. Strange but true. So, Doug, there are many great reasons we're thankful for the start of the baseball season. Here's the best reason of all, I think. It's the return of our Strange But True segment. And I know it's early. Some really strange and really true stuff has happened already, Doug. So why don't we just zip through a few of these? They're kind of fun. Mm. Um, You know, the Rangers are off to a good start. We all know that. Let me say this again. The Rangers are off to a good start. We all know that. Maybe you didn't know this. The Rangers outscored the Cowboys in their first two games, 20, <laughs> 27 to 23. Is that good? Seems good. That's pretty good, <laughs> to say the least. Meanwhile, you touched on the Royals earlier. The Royals scored the most runs in baseball in spring training. And what did that mean, Doug? They got shut out in their first two games of the season. That's what it meant. Is that good? Yeah, the old spring training. What does it mean? We do not know. When will we ever figure that out? Yeah, that's not that good. Um, Trace Thompson, he had a day. Mm. Saturday Saturday night, first game of his his season, he went slam, three-run homer, and then hit another homer solo in the same game. You know how many Dodgers had ever had a game like that with a slam? a three-run homer, and a third homer of any kind of homer? Nobody, no Dodger in history had ever had one of those. And then Trace Thompson, who they claimed on waivers last year, had that game. Is baseball beautiful, Doug? It's beautiful. And, you know, I mean, his brother shoots threes for a living, so I figured that makes sense, actually. Um, (laughs) But I I actually spoke to Mike Lieberthal not long ago, old teammate, and uh, I read somewhere that he hit the uh, cycle slam or whatever you call it, the slam cycle. He had a grand slam, three-run homer, two-run homer, and solo homer in the same game in high school. So I called him to confirm this, and he did say it happened. So uh, I just thought I'd throw that out there. Pretty crazy, right? It's the slam cycle? The home slam run cycle. cycle. Yeah, that's, I don't <laughs> what, know. The slam, what, yeah, whatever it is. Cycle, it, I don't, whatever it is, it's a hell of a day. Let's say four, three, two, one. So that's... <laughs> It's 10 RBIs. 10 RBIs That's on four home runs. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Trace Thompson's not that good. He only hit three and had eight RBIs. <laughs> uh, okay. Also, Saturday, uh, Adam Duval came mm-hmm. to the plate in the ninth inning. He needed a single for the cycle. The only reason he got to the plate at all was because the Orioles dropped the final out of the game in left field. And don't try that at home. But it, instead of hitting for the cycle, getting that single. You know what yeah. Adam Duval did? Here's what he did, Doug. Rep Snyder, the base runner. Swing and drive! This one deep! Oh, it's hot up there! That ball should be out! That ball should be out! That ball is out! It is gone! It is gone! It's a walk-off for the Red Sox! They're trying to see if there's a replay on this, but it hit that padding. It's stuck. Wow, is right. Dave O'Brien on the call. Um, 
How many hitters in the history of baseball had come to the plate needing a single for the cycle and instead hit a walk-off home run? According to our friends from Stats, that would be none, Doug. Not a one. None. Wow. Zero, about right. Really? Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. You're supposed to hit a single. Yeah. I mean, well, John Chomby would be very happy about this because he, he doesn't like the cycle for the reason yeah. that actually he just showed, right? You'd rather have the home run than the single. But man, that that's a that's the way to cap off a great day. Yeah, the cycle definitely overrated. But walk-off homers when you need a single for the cycle, not overrated. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh opening day. Max Muncie put up the opening day platinum sombrero, second one in history. Uh so I you know, I just got to thinking. I wonder how many times the the Dodgers, any Dodgers, struck out five times last season. So that answer was None. So they went through the whole season. Nobody struck out five times. They got to opening day of this season. And what happened? Max Muncy struck out five times. Can you explain baseball, Doug Landville? I never can. That's why never. we do what we do. Uh, it's alien, alien nation. You got to just roll with it. That, that's that's why Starkville exists. We yes. roll with stuff just like that. Extra uh, okay, let's. Yeah, let's do one more of these. Uh, this was from Sunday. Giancarlo Stanton comes to the plate. He's a large man. He hits the ball real hard. Here is what he did. Stanton swings, drills one. The deep left center field. That ball is high. It is far. It is gone. Oh, what a shot. Oh, what a shot. That is a Stantonian home run. A blast drilled to deep left center field. Giancarlo, non si posto Barlow. A two-run home run, and the Yankees take a 3 nothing lead. That really was Stuparlo. That was way over the batter's eye. Whatever's up there on top of the batter's eye, wow. What a shot, huh? Oh, my. That's Doug, you know, uh, Italian, you, you speak Italian fluently. What was John Sterling trying to say there? No idea. My Spanish is pretty good. I know they're kind of closely related, but I never did get the Sterling call, but I'm glad he coined it and made it, put his name on it. Yeah, I think that was Italian for that ball just went over the batter's eye. Okay. <laughs> that ball, John Carlos Stanton hit a ball 485 feet and 117.8 miles an hour, and mm -hmm. it went over the batter's eye in Yankee Stadium. Doug, well, that would, that how would many balls have you? Yeah. How many balls have you hit over the batter's eye at Yankee Stadium? Uh, I hit it over the like the L screen from the uh, the pitcher during <laughs> batting practice. So I I take that. Uh -huh. uh, well, right, how many times the batter's? Yeah, if it goes over the batter's eye, does that it makes it an eyebrow? So that's what I think. That makes sense, right? <laughs> it's over the eye. It's an eyebrow. So we'll call that an eyebrow home run. I like that. I like that. Just mean, write that the down. Lash yeah, it. It could down. be an eyelash. Eyelash. Yeah, it could uh, be an eyelash. Yeah, I like I that. Know. That might be even better. Eyelash. Yeah. I, I was going to ask you how many times you would have had to hit a ball to get it to go over the batter's eye at Yankee Stadium. Well, with a golf club, maybe twice. If I had a golf club and a golf ball, I'd, I'd probably hit it that far. Yeah, because no well, you need a lot of loft on it because that batter's eye is big, big and tall. Yeah, anyway, one iron, two iron. Yeah. <laughs> Strange but true is back, Doug. Baseball is back. Strange but true is back. Regular season Starkville is back. It's a beautiful thing, don't you think? 
we are back and it is our opening day too and uh i think we're going to score a lot of runs this year uh in trivia or just yes. in general well in general <laughs> okay. but we'll, we'll create right. our own thing. Try, try to help out next week that's all anyhow that's gonna do it for this week's show we'll be bringing you podcast magic just like this one all season long on the athletic baseball show which is available in its entirety absolutely free everywhere you get your podcasts and you know if you'd like to read any of the fabulous baseball coverage in the athletic you've come once again to the right place if you go to the athletic.com slash baseball show and you're a new subscriber you can subscribe for just two dollars a month for the next 12 months what it is amazing but also remember you too can be part of this podcast because every show we pick some fun listener trivia question. And then that lucky listener gets to join us right here and prove once again that there's almost no baseball trivia question that Doug Glanville can't get wrong, even if I get it right. <laughs> so in order to do that, you have choices. One choice is email us at Starkville at theathletic.com. Starkville has an E on the end, of course. Or you can still visit the Twitter which is still operating and Doug Lanville is operating within the Twitter. Doug, where can we find you at the Twitter? Well, Twitter blue. Uh, I have a blue check mark. I don't know so how far, that right? works, but yeah, so far it's still there. Um, but anyway, we'll see if that evaporates, but what won't evaporate so far is at Doug Glanville. You can find me anytime you want. D O U G G L A N V I L L E. Right, Doug, please do not evaporate. You can find me at Jason with a Y-S-T-G-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T. Please hashtag your questions. Hashtag Starkville QS. So, Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Theo Epstein for visiting us. Thanks to Jeffrey Gow for the great trivia question. Thanks to the mayor of Starkville, Tim McMaster, for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. Doug and I will see you next week. Uh, Starkville. Starkville.